Welcome back to another episode of In the Aisle. As always, I am your host, Christina. Thank you all for joining me here on this Sunday. I don't know about you all, but the weather is absolutely terrible (laughs) from where I am. So I hope that you can spend today listening to this podcast and staying dry and indoors. Today's episode will start with going over some more analysis pieces from the topics that we talked about in part one. As always, you'll hear me say it again later on, but if you haven't checked that out yet, I definitely recommend or I feel like you might be a little bit lost in what we're talking about in part two. And then, of course, jumping into D-cubed, which we had to push to this episode for time restraints on the last episode, and we'll be talking about horse race journalism in that. And then, of course, following that would be Caitlin's second interview portion that was, again, so fun to listen back to, and I'm very excited for you guys to take a listen to that. And then after that, we'll just be wrapping things up today on In the Aisle. So as many of you probably know at this point, and um, some of you actually might not because if this is one of the first times you're tuning in, you probably haven't heard this spiel yet. But I always like to give a fun fact about myself before launching into any part two episode that I have, just so you all can get to know me a little bit better. And I try to do a good mix between political and non-political things so you can hear about my experiences a little bit in the world of politics, but then also, you know, get to know me as a person because I'm not all politics all the time. (laughs) So I decided that today's fact would be political because last week's was not. And um, I kind of wanted to share actually what I wrote my senior thesis about when I graduated from St. A's last May. So to give you some context, a lot of seniors at seniors do have to write, you know, senior theses. Um, I was one of the very special people who had to write two because I was a double major and both majors required them. So communication, that was a whole separate process. So the politics one I'm going to talk about was that I actually researched bipartisanship in Congress and, you know, looked at what factors can con- potentially contribute to bipartisanship. So I looked at gender as well as age where somebody's from, how long they've been in Congress, and things like that. And I actually found out that women are slightly more bipartisan than men, and age is not a factor at all, which I honestly thought could be at that point. And other things like party honestly didn't contribute to how bipartisan someone would be. Um, However, how conservative or liberal a person is from, like their area that they're from, does impact bipartisanship, which was really interesting. And there's a bunch of other things that I researched too that, I, for time's sake, I won't jump into. But it was a really cool experience. Um, something I appreciate now. Definitely did not appreciate it as I was doing it. I honestly lost a little bit of my sanity that I still haven't gotten back um, from that whole process. But if you want to hear more about that, definitely let me know. Shoot me a DM at In the Isle Podcast on Instagram. And I'd be happy to talk about it more on this podcast or with you directly. Now that that's all out of the way, let's jump into the second portion of the analysis I have for you all today. All right, so let's jump back into the analysis. We're talking about how Virginia has repealed the death penalty. Now, in part one, if you haven't checked that out yet, highly recommend because I go over, you know, what this means for Virginia and like why they chose to do this and the people it impacts the most. Um, so definitely check that out if you haven't. 
So now in part two, I am planning on talking about more of what this means for this country moving forward. So just to recap a quick thing that I mentioned in part one, Virginia is one of the leaders here, in my opinion, for the death penalty because they are the ones who basically have killed the most people with the death penalty in this country out of any other state. So off the bat, this could lead to more people, or I should say more states, viewing the death penalty as something that's antiquated and can actually be repealed. And the one thing I will say here, though, is that we have to remember that Virginia is a bluer state now than it was. So why does this matter? Well, we tend to see blue states be the ones who repeal the death penalty. And a lot of that just has to do with, you know, Democratic Party doesn't really believe in it anymore. Not to say that Republicans don't either, but we tend to see red states like Texas, for example, hold on to the death penalty. There are still a lot of people in this country who love the death penalty and don't ever want to see that go. And they see that as a proper way of justice to bring down on somebody who, you know, has committed a heinous act. While Virginia is, again, bluer, it's still a southern state. And there's still that camaraderie there that southern states have with one another. So if states in the south see this as something that Virginia's done, it could impact them as well. Not to mention, almost half of this country in terms of states, have already repealed the death penalty. So it could just be a matter of the Jones effect, too, with, with some of these states where they're seeing other states do it. Um, they don't want to be left behind. So now they're going to start pursuing measures themselves. I can say off the bat, I haven't seen of any other state, you know, in the wake of Virginia doing this, um, changing their policy with the death penalty as of now. But sometimes all it takes is for one state to, to start changing something in other states, you know, sometimes will jump on board within their own state legislators. So again, could have some impacts on the South. Not to mention, in Virginia's case, they really outlined what the costs were, really, with having this death penalty be in place. And not only financially, because again, we talked about it's expensive <laughs> to, to have somebody be on death row and to execute that, but it also is costly for the people living in this country. And not financially in that respect, but, you know, particularly with the Black community, because they are the ones who, who seem to be killed on death row at a higher rate than any other group of people. And that is something Virginia recognized and wanted to reconcile. And that's, again, a big reason why they chose to repeal the death penalty. And again, Jones effect, this could potentially cause people to see that this could be something we could do nationwide. At some point, and this is it's a hard example to give because I haven't seen anything in the past year or so. It would be a really good example to throw in that you would have heard of to explain how this would work. But a lot of the times, if enough states in the country have done something and they all now have the same laws, it makes it a lot easier to then make it nationwide policy because then it can pass through Congress quicker than normal. It can, you know, you have a lot of people who can speak on it if it benefits the states that they're from. And with something like the death penalty, it's not a matter of if this can be nationwide policy. I truly believe it's a matter of when this will be nationwide policy. Because I think as a society, we are moving past this idea that someone should die for the crimes they've committed. I'm not saying they shouldn't be punished because they absolutely should if, you know, they're killing people or they're just, you know, a menace to society, so to speak, with like the acts that they've done. But there are other ways or more humane ways of dealing with people. And 
I think again, we're, we're getting, people are kind of realizing that more than they would have maybe even 10, 15, 20 years ago. So again, it's just a matter of when, and I, I think it's something we'll see in our lifetime, but if we weren't living in such crazy times right now, I think this would have garnered more attention and would have sparked a debate about the death penalty in this country. But since we are dealing with the pandemic, it's just the timeline of it. Like, who's going to be the next state to repeal the death penalty? Is there going to be pushback um, if we try to do a nationwide policy? You know, these are questions I don't have the answer to. But what I can tell you is, like, Virginia doing this is, is I think, honestly, a very pivotal moment in the you know, whole debate surrounding the death penalty. And we are dealing with the gun issues that we are now seeing this week, for example, in Congress and in this country. I think this is going to be one of those things that are going to be you know, swept under the rug for now. And honestly, I think that's with a lot of issues that I've talked about so far in this podcast. A lot of things should have garnered more attention on a federal level. But with everything else going on, it's hard to focus on really anything but the pandemic right now. So we'll see what happens in the future. But I wanted to throw in, you know, this potential. I do truly think it's going to get to that point in our lifetimes. It's just a matter of when. All right, so let's now move on to talk about the gun legislation that has made its way through the House and then, of course, to the Senate. Now, in part one, if you honestly listen to nothing else in part one, of course, Caitlin's interview too, you can't skip that. So that would be the first thing. But if you had to listen to only one other thing in part one, I would strongly urge you to listen to the history that of gun legislation in this country that I went over because I think that again gives such a good foundation to what is happening with this gun legislation in this country especially now with new developments that have arisen that I'm going to address in this analysis but I think it gives you a lot of information there that you should listen to so again check that out if you haven't already but yeah, so that's really what I touched on in part one, the history and you know, where it leads to today with what we're looking at in Congress. So part two, what I'm planning on doing is talking about what is going on in the Senate and the divide that we have there, as well as, again, like I said, some new developments that literally when I read them, I gasped because I, I never thought we'd get to this point. And it is fascinating to me to see that this is where we're at. All right, so let's start with the divide. So even if you're somebody who doesn't pay attention to politics, I think you would understand and know already that you know Democrats believe in gun control, Republicans don't. So we already, are, again, are starting out with that divide. And just to go over the makeup of the Senate again, we have 50 Democrats, 50 Republicans, and Vice President Harris, who's a Democrat, who would be the tiebreaker, giving the Democrats the majority. So that's what we're looking at right now. There is also divide now within each party. It's more so honestly with the Democrats and the Republicans because the moderate Republicans, you know, are still siding with their party and they believe that, you know, having more restrictions on with guns is not something that we should be pursuing and they they don't really understand the point of doing background checks um in the legislation that's coming through. But you also again are having the divide in the Democratic Party, which is posing a true roadblock for this legislation. For example, you have Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Democrat, who is not standing with his party right now because he doesn't believe that the background check legislation is something that we should be pursuing because it's too restrictive. Now, this is a scenario where you kind of 
And this is this is hard because as much as I really want to see background checks being passed and I want to see personally gun legislation, you kind of have to commend Joe Manchin here for the sole reason that he is proving that he is not somebody who's always going to side with his party. And, you know, in some scenarios, it's really frustrating for some of us when we see that because it's like, oh, why? You're a Democrat. Why don't you believe in this? Why aren't you voting for this? But in the long run, looking at people like Joe Manchin, those are the ones who are always going to be open to working with the other party. The moderates, for example, that's that's really what we would have to classify them and like people like Mitt Romney, for example, who are the ones who really act as a bridge between both parties. So while it is frustrating, again, if you are somebody who wants to see gun reform, to see Joe Manchin say this, you have to remember this is something that we we still need people like him because they're, again, the bridges between the parties, helping us work across the aisle and get other pieces of legislation done. So just need to throw that in there because it's also something that I needed to remind myself when I saw that because, again, I truly want, <laughs> want more gun reform, but, you know, besides the point. So like I said, the Democrats are dealing with roadblocks within their own party. That can't get sorted out as well as getting 10 other <laughs> Republicans to, to side with them to help make sure that the filibuster doesn't happen, then you're really not going to see this at all in the Senate getting voted on. And that is something that we, I mean, it's come to fruition. It's being stalled right now in the Senate. There's, there's no movement with that. Now, the other thing that I want to talk about before launching into some new updates with this would be with the Republican Party, because they have been very firm, you know, since day one, honestly, about gun rights. And, you know, like I said, in part one, you could have the potential for some Republicans who see this as an opportunity with the NRA not being as strong as it was to, you know, potentially vote with the Democrats here. And that is something that, honestly, we haven't seen. You know, when I said that, I wasn't wishful thinking. I truly thought that you could see a few potentially side with the Democrats. But I will say what has happened is you're seeing some Republicans acknowledging now that there something needs to be done. And I'm specifically talking about Ted Cruz. So if you didn't listen to anything I've said about Ted Cruz in the past on this podcast, specifically with the crisis in Texas we had, honestly, a few weeks ago, even like a month ago at this point, you can check that out to see, you know, how I feel about him personally. I'm not going to rehash that. However, what I will say is that, you know, Ted Cruz did acknowledge that we need to do something, which is huge because being a senator from Texas, <laughs> Texas is probably the state I would say is the most proud of gun rights. And I'm making a very general assumption here. So just take that information as you will. But you know, he he said in the Senate this week that, you know, we still need to protect gun rights. And he was very adamant about that. But then he also said, and a lot of Republicans agree, agree with him on this, that something needs to be done. Now, you can interpret that however you like. He could be saying something needs to be done in regards to, you know, getting criminals off the street. And that's something that he said in the past, you know, with people who are using guns for violent acts. The way I chose to interpret this was that he is acknowledging like, yeah, you know, this is a problem in this country. This is an issue that we are seeing over and over and over again. We need to figure out something. And again, it would be hard pressed to see him ever say that we need to put more restriction on gun rights. 
but it opens up a door that I don't think was there originally where Republicans might now want to be working with Democrats to find a common ground solution. It's going to be very hard to find a common ground solution between the two parties, but I think Republicans are now realizing that, you know, something really does need to be done. Again, I think that's kind of what we're seeing here. Like the Republicans don't like it, but they're not telling us what they want to see. They just want to avoid it altogether. So it's like, well, how can we even work together to find a common ground solution if you don't want to let us know, you know, your issues with this? But then that poses the question of what? What do they think needs to be done? And this is where I tend to get frustrated. And honestly, when I when I talk to friends about this too, and not just with gun, gun legislation, I'm talking about like across all areas of government. A lot of the times the Democrats and Republicans, because they both do this, will say, we need to do something, or I don't like that idea, or I don't like that legislation. And then it's like, okay, cool. What do you have in mind? And then they'll never be able to give you an answer. They'll dodge it. They'll be like, well, I just... I don't know. We can think about that later on. I just want to let you know that I don't like this legislation as it is right now. And then that's how legislation dies because no one wants to work together. Or you just don't even want to like compromise, even though you're acknowledging that there is a problem. That's kind of where we're at right now. And again, it's going to be so interesting to see how this pans out with the new developments, which I can now jump into with you guys. There is now word coming from the White House that Biden is thinking about putting in place some executive actions to actually have background checks be put in place for gun owners, people who want to buy guns and things like that. This is huge for many reasons. It's something that I really didn't think we'd see from Biden at all. I didn't think we'd get to this point, but here we are. And to give you some context of, of I think, why that is, so you actually, in 1994, Biden was one of the senators who helped to pass a ban on assault weapons in this country. The issue with that legislation is that it expired 10 years after it was passed. Like it had an expiration date on it and it has not been reinstated since. And I think Biden, again, being one of the people who helped to push that through, you know, obviously somebody who, again, takes this very seriously. And he is somebody who I think understands that we can actually get this passed. We can get this done. It's just not happening. The reason why I think this is major is that Biden is sending a lot of messages here by doing this. The first is that he's not messing around. He is somebody who I think is really trying to prove that he is going to be somebody who gets things done. And I think the co- that COVID is the perfect example to explain this because he is pushing himself to get as many people vaccinated as he can. So I think, again, he's showing that he's not messing around and he is somebody who is going to f- to fight for what he believes in. The other messages that he's sending is that he is not going to put up with partisanship or, if I may say, corruption in terms of, you know, legislation that he believes to be passed. He's not going to tolerate that. You know, he's going to make it so that you're like, hey, like, if you're not going to do the work that you're supposed to do when you're in office in, you know, serving the, your constituents and the people of this country, then at some point I'm going to lay down the law and I'm not going to put up with it and I'm going to do what I see fit. And if you don't want it to get to that point, then you need to be working together to figure out a solution. And it also, I think, sends a message of how he believes that we desperately need this legislation. And I think, honestly, the stars had to align exactly how they did for Biden to get to this point. Because he is somebody who has said explicitly that, you know, if he doesn't believe that he has the right to do this, not even that he has the power, 
but if he has the right to personally do this as president, he won't enact any executive actions. In this case, apparently, he does believe that he has the right to do so. Again, it goes back to, I think, how desperately we need this legislation and how much he sees that and recognizes that and wants it to happen, too. You also have to remember, too, that he was vice president when Sandy Hook happened. So, I mean, a lot of these things he's been front and center for and understands the impact and sees, you know, how that really affects our government. And I think with the amount of mass shootings that we've seen, honestly, even just like in my lifetime, the past 22 years, I think it's he's he's seen enough and he, it's time for something to happen. So big messages that he's sending. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this is moving forward. I am going to be following this. We'll hopefully have an update for you all next week about new things that develop from this. Um, but if so, something does happen, like an executive action, I'm sure you're going to hear about it in some capacity before I let you know. Let's now move on to talk about Biden appointing Harris to handle the immigration crisis in this country. If you recall, part one talked about what this means for immigration policy in this country. And I said in part two, I was going to focus on really the politics behind Biden appointing Harris to take this on. Because it is really interesting, like the, when, if you start digging into it, and on the surface, I'm sure it looks like, oh, it makes sense. You know, Harris is his vice president. And of course, she has she takes on roles, too, as the vice president. And she has responsibilities. But I to me, it, it's so much more than that. And so I really want to share that with you all today. So first and foremost, I would say... It was really clever for Biden to do this and to put Harris on the immigration crisis. Honestly, the, the reasons why I believe this would be that, I, to me, it seems that it can keep him free to focus on the pandemic and now potentially with gun legislation that I was talking about, which is, I think, the first and foremost, extremely important in being smart and being able to delegate and making sure that the pandemic, of course, is still being addressed. A second reason would be, of course, that the it looks like the White House is actually listening to the public right now, and it's just a, it's a sign that you know Biden in the, his administration will be taking this a little bit more seriously going forward, and again showcasing that is clever of Biden to do. And the third reason it was clever of Biden was that you know if if Kamala succeeds, then he can join in on her success and say I was the one who who appointed her. You know we can celebrate this together, but if she is unsuccessful. And she's not able to do what she's supposed to be doing with, you know, working with the Central American countries that where people are fleeing from, then he'll get called out for it and kind of judged for it. But all that blame is going to go on her. So it's honestly just like a win-win for for Biden at this point because the problem is still getting addressed. But again, if Kamala's not successful, then that doesn't really completely fall on him. It might look like that and some people's reactions might be like that from the get-go, but I think it would be more reflective of her than it is for him. So now that though like we understand that, I mean, it's really easy then to make the jump to say that this could be Kamala's make or break moment. And the reason for that is, I mean, this is the first thing we're really seeing her do outside of the Senate. And not only that, it's a huge undertaking to have to kind of figure out this immigration situation and working with other countries and, you know, kind of being like an ambassador, like a diplomat in some cases, and trying to work with them. But if Kamala, and ultimately, I mean, when I look at this too, then this could really just pave the way for her to run again in the future, maybe even 2024. Because the truth of the matter is, and I was literally just talking about this with a friend today, 
that, you know, Biden might be a one-term president for the sole reason of, you know, running again and, and being in office for another four years in 2024 at this point would just be too much. And I think a lot of, that isn't hard. I think a lot of us understand that, like he's, he's on the older side. He might not have it in him to, to do another term in office. But if you have Kamala, who builds up trust with the American public over four years time and proves that she's somebody who can take care of things, then it could really help her if she wants to run for office again. It could make her seem like a more um, experienced candidate, which is what people want to see, honestly. Not only that, but if Kamala is successful, then she's going to have both parties commend her for it. You know, Democrats, of course, she is a Democrat, so they would naturally give her a pat on the back and say, you did a great job on this and be proud of her. But the Republicans would also kind of find themselves in the same boat. And not just like the ones in Congress or are in our government, but I think your everyday Republican as well. And the reason for that is, I mean, if she's successful, right, and she's able to, to help address this crisis, less people would be coming into this country illegally, which is something that I'm not to pin this down as something with the Republican Party. But there are a lot of conservatives who don't believe in illegal immigration. So if she were able to help tackle that, I think would be huge and could really get her some some support. I think that while this is clever for Biden to do and like the politics behind it, I think that he wouldn't have done this if she he didn't think that she could do it. That's kind of self-explanatory, but like if, if when once you start looking at it beneath the surface and like the reasons why he put her there and why he wants her to tackle this, I think it's really clear that he has faith in her to get the job done, um, which means that, you know, if he has faith in her, we should also have faith in her that she's going to be able to to tackle this. But, you know, the flip side, again, is that if she's not successful, I mean, Biden can really just kind of not wipe his hands clean of the situation, but it doesn't hurt him as much as it would hurt her. So, again, very clever to have Biden be the one to to not be tackling this. And, you know, he can focus on the pandemic and then you know, even after it's over, she can still like take on this immigration fiasco. And from there, if it's again, make or break for her. I hope you all enjoyed the analysis that I did for those three topics. Definitely a lot of information again. Um, I appreciate you sticking it out and listening to the whole thing. Um, and I hope now you can see why it would have been overwhelming to put it all in one episode. So now we are going to be moving to the Democracy Deep Dive, otherwise known as D-Cubed, that I had to move from part one to part two. So get ready for that, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, so let's pick up where we left off with horse race journalism in terms of, you know, how the media affects government and how that in turn affects us. So horse race journalism is something that really only exists with campaigns. And so it's not something that we do see like every single day within the news media. So it is honestly something that is a little bit harder to pick out. But, you know, once we go over this today, I'm sure the next time that campaigns and elections come around, you're going to be able to pick out uh, what horse race journalism is and what it looks like. So in general, the media covers elections based on polling data and public opinion. Now, this is something that's really interesting because, you know, media has the option here to focus on policy in regards to candidates and what they believe in, and you give people information in terms of that, as well as the public opinion of the person running. And they do that for basically one reason, and because it's all about numbers to them. 
So they basically just want people to tune in to their newscast when they're talking about politics, and they find that focusing on polling data and public opinion is what makes it entertaining for us to stick around. So for example, with polling, and this is something I also did in college, and I can attest that, you know, sometimes this, this does impact, you know, how people look at candidates. If you're calling a group of people randomly, let's say in the state of Wyoming about their next Senate race, and you get only talk to 100 people, from there, the polling results of the people can then be reported on and can be given out as news information. So depending on who you get in that polling, you could get that everyone supports the Democratic candidate and have it be skewed towards them. When in reality, we know Wyoming's a Republican state. So if people see the results of that, you know, it could impact like how they vote and who they support down the line if they think that there's more support for that candidate than there actually is. And, you know, in terms of public opinion, like I said, they're, they want to pick the people who they think that we're going to be entertained with so we can continue. If, and I think Donald Trump was a really wonderful example of this. Um, well, wonderful is not the right word, <laughs> honestly, but I would say uh, strong. He was a very strong example of this where they started covering him back in 2015 so much because he was a celebrity in a household name. And people were interested to see, you know, if he was an actual serious candidate or not. I mean, we found out that he did end up being a very serious candidate. Obviously, he was president for the last four years. But, you know, the media really helped in the beginning without realizing it. I think that points to give him that stronghold because, again, they were reporting on him so frequently. In conjunction with that, you know, the media also plays to people's favorites with public opinion, too. So if there's a candidate that people love to hate or, you know, are obsessed with, like a lot of the times Bernie Sanders is another example of this where people either love him or can't stand him. Like, regardless, people will be tuning in to hear what Bernie Sanders has to say. Um, and the news media takes advantage of that. And so they'll spend more time on candidates like that, who they think are going to bring in the numbers for them for people tuning in. Additionally, what, what this does then is that it has candidates who, you know, if you're not popular enough, then you're not actually going to be focused on. It honestly reminds me a lot of like student council elections in like middle school and high school. Where, you know, you could be somebody who is super like, qualified, quote unquote, or however qualified you can be at age like 15 or whatever, like running for student council or something like that. But, you know, if you don't have the popular opinion or people don't like you, you're not going to be voted on, voted into office. You know, the same thing honestly still applies for elections that we have on the local, state and federal level. People are not fans of you. You're not going to get the vote because they're not going to be given airtime uh, for the news media. And it's really important to point out here, too, and the news media knows this, but they still continue to per, uh, pursue, is that polls and public opinion, again, are not always accurate. And it really can impact elections and public opinion of people. I mean, you, what you tend to see in elections, and this is something that's more common, I would say, for running for president, but the news media, you'll always see like a candidate or two who will get the limelight for like a week or so. And then that's all the news media will focus on. And then from there, people think that they're actually more popular than they are and will, will consider voting for them. And then the news media will choose not to pursue them any further. And then you never hear from them again. You know, examples off the top of my head would be Amy Klobuchar from this last election, um, Ben Carson back in like 2015 or 2016, um, and people like that who were really popular for a short amount of time. And then, you know, all of a sudden just stopped being within the news media. So people stopped paying attention to them. Um, and really did not vote for them to win the candidacy. And the, I would say the biggest thing to remember here about horse race journalism is that, you know, it can really impact 
who is going to win elections. Because, I mean, we, we rely on the media, like I said in part one, for so much information. They're t- them telling us. But if the news, again, is only covering certain people, then people tend to only vote for who they know, especially if they're not paying attention to politics a lot. So, you know, we you tend to have situations where the candidate who is the most qualified or is the best doesn't always win elections. And that has to do a lot with the news media and who they're putting in their spotlight. Horse race journalism also adds to the length of how long election seasons are. Now, this is something that I don't think any of us really think about. We always just assume that like the politicians are the ones who start the election cycles, which is true. There's some truth to that. They can always they can decide at any point when they want to declare to run for, for office is the one that they really start reporting on that. So like in the United States, for example, the election for the presidency and the campaigns for that, they start like 18 months before the actual election takes place. To give you some perspective there, countries like England, for example, have election cycles that are only six weeks long. And and that's all they spend on it. I mean, and, and then again, in this country, it's so much longer than that. And a lot of that has to do with the media. And it's a cycle that is getting longer and longer. And I don't know about you all, but... Dude, if it gets any longer than it is now, I think I'm going to lose my mind. I can only handle so much of politics, and this is my passion. <laughs> so it's so really just wrapping things up. I mean, this goes to show how the media just can control campaign seasons and what we're focusing on and, you know, skew results on in some ways so that we think that a candidate is more popular than they actually are. And again, it impacts who people vote for. So that's really all I'm going to touch on with horse race journalism today. Um, if you have any questions, as always, feel free to shoot me a DM on my Instagram at In the Isle Podcast, and I'd be happy to answer them for you. Now let's get to the portion of this episode I'm sure you've been waiting for the most. That would, of course, be the second half of the conversation I had with Caitlin. Just to reiterate a point that I made in part one, um, again, audio got a little messed up, unfortunately, when we, I was processing and editing. So she sounds a little bit on the quiet side, had nothing to do with her and all to do, unfortunately, with the software that I use to make this. Um, It's free, which is great, but, you know, it always gives me a roadblock and a headache, honestly, when I make these episodes, but besides the point. So I just want to throw that in there again so you can be aware of that and be sure to adjust your volume so you can hear her um, in her entirety. But other than that, I am so excited for you all to check it out today and hear what we had to say. The other thing that I just want to throw in here real quick is that at some point, Caitlin and I talk about the ERA, which is the Equal Rights Amendment. And for some reason, I kept calling it the Equal Rights Act. And it's it's so funny. I didn't catch myself in the moment, but I was listening back. I was like, huh, that is simply not correct. So I wanted to throw it in ahead of time so that for those of you who have never heard of it before, you have the right terminology for what we are talking about and not calling it the Equal Rights Act because that is not correct. Without further ado, let's hear part two of my interview and conversation with Caitlin Parks. Now that we have like a backstory about you, I kind of want to jump into like the the bulk of like what we wanted to talk about today would be, I would say like voting in particular to like women's issues. And it's really interesting because the interview that I, I just had with someone also named Caitlin for this <laughs> month, um, we talked about women in voting. Women, we make up 51% of this country, but 
and we always are the ones to turn out to vote the most. But we don't recognize how much power we have as a group and how much we can really impact policy, uh, which is so fascinating to me. I don't know if you have a take on that as well. No, absolutely. I think if you look at the statistics, I don't remember what the exact number is now for the percentage of women who are in in Congress. I think it's close to like 30%. Christina, I don't know if you know, mm-hmm. but from yeah, you're right. percent of the country is represented by about 30% of the government. So just looking at that statistic alone, you know that there's some sort of a problem. And I think that women in general are capable of so much more than society gives them credit for. And I think that we are moving in the right direction. And I cannot wait for the day that we get to a 50-50 percentage in Congress. And it's coming, it's coming. (laughs) <laughs> I know I I also cannot wait and I know I remember Caitlin also mentioned that like you still have you have places like Nevada where their state legislator is I think close to 60% female so it is possible oh, and it's one of those things where it's it's change but it's good change and it's just a matter of making sure that everybody's voices are being heard and that they're being represented equally absolutely and I I just wrote a paper on Rwanda actually for one of my political classes mm-hmm. and I think their government is maybe I think it's close to 60% women. Um, So if you think of a place like Rwanda, you know, struggling from genocide, and then you look at the United States, and we're only at 30% women in government, you think that, you know, there, there's a possibility there, and we should be further along than we are. Yeah, no, you're so right. And I remember seeing a statistic and I'll have to get the source for you guys after this interview. But it was something like the the way that we're on track right now in this country, it'll take another 130 years for there to be equal representation between men and women. And in some places, too, for the pay gap to close. And I just remember thinking when I saw that, I was like, wow, that is that just highlights how like much progress we're not making exactly. and how much further along we should be. Yeah, that's crazy. I know. Yeah, definitely insane. You have a lot of people paying attention to, to whatever woman's issues on the table. But yeah, so let's, let's sound like, let's switch a little bit to talk about like women's issues in particular. Um, and I think this is where it comes into how it's so important to have women in government, because a lot of the times women's issues are not things that are spotlighted unless they're surrounded in controversy or, you know, people are striking when the iron is hot, so to speak. And yeah, absolutely. Um, I think if you were to go around and, you know, survey people on the street, I think a lot of people would say like, oh, yeah, it's completely fine. We're totally equal. You know, I've been in group projects before where the guys in my group have said, what do you mean? There's no gender pay gap. Like one time I suggested in a group project, like, oh, we should do our project on the pay gap when it was about economics. And someone was like, that's not real. We can't do our project on that. Uh Wow, I'm getting um, a little <laughs> aggravated just hearing that. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's it, and that actually is a really good point that you bring up, Caitlin. Where you know the the truth's out there, but a lot of the times there's either misinformation that makes it harder for like for something like the pay gap or really any other woman's issue to get attention in the like the change that it deserves. Or there are people who are just so comfortable with how things are right now that they. They don't want that change to happen. So, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, again, very, very important what you just, we just pointed out with that. What would you say, like, in your opinion, 
are ways that we can start getting women's issues on the minds of our senators and representatives so that change can start happening. Honestly, I think it goes back to what we were talking about before and just get more women in office. Because at this point, yeah. I think if you if you look at the math, there's no way that if male congressmen and male senators haven't, you know, stepped up and figured it out by now, that it's probably not going to happen. So, you know, if you, you look at Congress people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and you see, you know, her past and how she has experienced that firsthand, she is someone that is going to fight for equal pay, who's going to fight for women's issues. So if you get people in office who have firsthand experiences with these issues and with these problems that we're all dealing with, then it is so more, so much more likely that something is actually going to get done about it. Right. I can't, I can't agree with that more. And it's so interesting because in now every interview I've done on this podcast, I think the one common thread that I connect between everybody, is just this idea that representation Absolutely. matters. And it's the idea that even just having women in government, like regardless of party, impacts us so much because it, it allows us to see that like this is a viable path for us. And this is something that we can achieve and that this isn't just a man's like field of work, so to speak. So I think it really matters with like get, getting ourselves used to seeing women in politics and also pushing the women around us and lifting them up so that they can elevate to running for office and start holding those positions that can yes, start making absolutely. a change. Women supporting women. Yes, yes, it's so important. And it's something that, uh, especially like in the what we're dealing with right now in Congress, it gets so hard because everything is so partisan. And there used to be times in the House and especially in the Senate where the women would actually team together and like find ways to work with one another, even if they didn't have anything in common. So the, the next question I want to ask you with like your internships, like on the Hill, um, it's okay if you maybe haven't seen anything specifically with this, but I just wanted to ask out of curiosity, what is it like, like seeing the women, like either senators or representatives, like working like do you see them working together is there a camaraderie there even with like their staff yeah, members so unfortunately my internship did get cut short I was supposed to be interning for the spring semester of last year so right when the pandemic hit so I was only there for a couple of months when I should have been there for a few more but I found that in Congressman Moulton's office everyone worked together really really nicely and I personally didn't experience or see you know, any of the sexism that I may have seen in the hallways at the state house. And I think that part of that could just mm -hmm. be because, you know, we had a great Democratic office and Democratic staff. And it could have been that, you know, I was only there for a couple of months. I didn't get as many opportunities to go, you know, through the hallways and work with other offices. But what I did notice in our particular office was that everybody was very supportive and supportive of each other. That's so great to hear. And it's it's something that like, fortunately, with everyone I think I've talked to, like, in regards to this podcast, they, they all can attest that like, they've all worked in environments where that's the case. But it's truly actually something that is not as common as we would think it would be, especially in, in Congress. And it's one of those things that we're hoping that can change down the line. But it's just a matter of, I think, like you said, like getting more women involved in politics so that they are being represented in those rooms and can make a change, you know, when we need them to make a change, especially with Absolutely. women's issues. So now speaking of women's issues again, what would you say is the one that you are the most passionate about and why? Oh, this is always a hard question for me um, <laughs> because I find all of it to be so important. 
I think for me, I don't even know if this qualifies as like a political issue, but just being considered as an equal. When I was in Mm. the third grade, the teacher passed out a packet that took us, you know, three days to get through on the pilgrims. And we're reading about all of these so-called air quotes, wonderful things that the pilgrims were doing and the early colonists were doing. And then at the very end of the packet, there's like one paragraph on women in colonial times. And it's, it basically says women stayed home and cleaned and cooked. And it was at that moment that I became a raging feminist, even though I didn't know that that was a word. (laughs) I didn't know that was a thing, but I was just like, that's wrong. That needs to change. I'm not cool with that. being considered equal, you know, having the ERA pass finally and having written Mm. documentation that, you know, I am an equal to the white man sitting next to me. And that that is so powerful what you just said. And I think we honestly need to take a moment to just appreciate the North Andover public school system for really just like getting getting both you and I where we need to be (laughs) right now to be having this conversation how much it impacted both of us that's so funny so shout shout out to yeah naps for for really setting us off here but i i think i'm so honestly happy that this is what you brought decided to bring up because it's again one of those things that there are people out there who actually believe that women i mean are equal to men and in some ways have too many rights and so when you have people like that in the country that we're living in, like even in positions of power, they're the ones that that stop things like the ERA from getting, oh, also guys, if you don't know, the ERA stands for the Equal Rights Act. Just gonna throw that in there in case you're not aware. But um, like that's part of the reason why that that act took so long to get passed. Um, so I think uh, my next question to you would be like, how, how do you work through something like that? Like in the moment, if, you, if you're feeling like you're not being perceived as equal to, the man standing next to you like what do you do in the moment to help get yourself through that as I'm sure you know it is very frustrating and there have been moments Mm. that you know whether it was on a campaign or you know in a government building that I've experienced something like that and I've kind of learned over time just to be bold and to go for it and you know don't really care if you come across as a bitch but you got to stand up for yourself sorry if I'm not allowed to say that word but and be like hey like I can do that too like there's no need to treat me any differently because of my age because of my sex you know because of whatever reason you know I'm here you know I'm just as good if not better than you know whatever the counterpart is and um going back to the yeah. ERA one you know really cool and proud moment was in the 2019-2020 campaign season, I was working with some other students at American University, and we went and did some campaigning in Virginia for a lot of the really difficult swing seats. And that year, Virginia ended up flipping to be completely blue, and they were the last state needed Mm -hmm. to ratify the ERA so that it could go into Congress and be up for being able to pass and now it's all you know stuck and there's you know different complicated legal things that need to happen but being able to be a part of something that you know created the last big step needed to pass the era was absolutely amazing and something that i will never forget 
Oh, that I just got chills listening to that. That is such a cool story. And it and it goes to show too that like all you have to do if you like sometimes if you want to make change is just to get yourself out there in the start. Because I know talked a little bit about this podcast in the past where it can be intimidating to, you know, especially if you I mean, granted, we both have political experience and we kind of know what it's like to campaign and what what we would be getting ourselves into. But I'm sure some of you listening for the first time who have never had that experience, I'm sure it can be very intimidating to jump into something you don't know. But you never know like what you're you're working on and what you're passionate about could impact your town and then from there your state and then from the rest of the country. Um, so I, I hope you can listen to that and be inspired from what Caitlin has said to, to, to pick something that you're passionate about and get out there and, and start making a change and getting involved in government because you you could be the one person that they need to, to get things off the ground for whatever area that you're passionate about. Yeah. Um, so it was really great to hear that story, Caitlin. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, as we're, we're get, wrapping this up a little bit, the last area that I wanted to talk to you about is like your future. Like, I'm so curious to hear where, where do you see yourself going forward? What are some projects that you are thinking about pursuing or internships even? And um, I know that's a hard question to ask somebody in college. Like if someone asked me a few years ago when I was a sophomore, I would just tell them, I don't know. <laughs> so if you don't know, that's okay. But I'm just super curious to hear like, yeah, what, what are the next so steps for you? If I had to pick my absolute, absolute dream job would be to work on White House senior staff. I think that would just be oh, the most nice. amazing experience. And hopefully one day I can get to work in that building. But for now, one of the projects that I started to work on in Congressman Moulton's office, I was working with a few of the other staff members in creating basically a nationwide program for what we have currently in Massachusetts that just passed with the eighth grade civics education program. So if there, if I'm able to, you know, work on that throughout my career, that is definitely going to be my passion project in trying to get universal civics education for eighth graders. So that way we have students who are coming into high school and they're more informed you know, they've learned to look at the news, to look at different sides of, of issues, and then they're more likely to vote once they're old enough to do so. So that is absolutely a project that I would like to continue working on. And as well as just being in D.C., I absolutely love this city. It's the, that same feeling that we were talking about of walking into the state house. It's that feeling mm-hmm. anywhere you go downtown because everything around you is historic and you know government buildings and changes that are being made in those you know marble poles that um you know make you feel like you're in ancient greece the architecture Mm -hmm. everything it's just absolutely beautiful and it is so inspiring to just be around all of this so i'm so excited to be here and to hopefully get to stay here for a long time Good. Well, I hope that for you as well, because like I said in the beginning, you're definitely somebody who I think oh, can see doing big things that. one day. So I'm so, oh, of course, no, it's the truth. And I'm so excited to hear about that potential for the nationwide civics program. So you're definitely going to have to keep me posted on that. Keep us here at In the Isle posted on that to hear about progress with that down the line. So the last question um, that I have for you today, Caitlin, since, of course, uh, people know the drill by now. I ask this of all my guests at this point in the interview. Can you name for me a Republican that you respect and admire and 
Can you also yeah, explain to absolutely. me why that would be? So another little funny story along with this one, John McCain is someone that I have always admired and respected. When I was in, I think also third grade, was the 2008 election. And the only thing that I knew about any of the candidates was that John McCain was in the military like grandpa. And I always looked up to and admired my grandpa. And I spent weeks trying to convince both of my parents to vote for John McCain. I was the biggest John McCain (laughs) supporter when I was eight. And, you know, like I said, that is the only thing that I knew about any of the candidates. And I have always admired him for his bravery and his military service. And then also, you know, as I got older and I learned more about politics and learned more about my viewpoints of, you know, realized that I was a Democrat, I still admired him in his, you know, willing to work across the aisle in being a good human being who still wants the best for his constituents and for the country. And I think that he was just a wonderful man. And I will always have so much respect for him. That's so great. And honest, it's so funny. I was waiting for when someone would bring up John McCain, because I think that's who I also would say. Like, I just, the the amount of respect that I have for that man is, is unmatched with, like, I think anyone else, like, past or present from the Republican Party. He was, he was a true, true American. And that was really, that was beautiful of what you said, Caitlin. So uh, the last thing I'll ask of you would be if you have anything uh, else that you would like to share with us, I'll leave the floor open to you to, if you have any closing remarks or anything that we didn't touch on today that you'd like to. (laughs) Honestly, this has been so much fun being able to talk to you. And I'm so excited that you reached out. I had so much fun doing this, you know, with the pandemic and everything. It has been a little bit of time since I've gotten to do anything, you know, really true political other than my classes. So this has been so much fun to, to you. And I'm so excited about what you're doing. And I'm, I'm so excited for you as well. Oh, thank you so much, Caitlin. I appreciate that. Um, well, it has been so fun for me today to talk to you as well. And of course, keep us keep us updated on your adventures and experiences Absolutely. here at In thank the Isle. Thank you so Isle, much okay? for having me. I hope you enjoyed that conversation I had with Caitlin. And I know I say this about every guest I have on, but, you know, she was truly amazing to talk to. And it was so fun reconnecting. She's somebody who I haven't talked to in a while. And uh, I was so glad that she agreed to do this so that way we can, you know, reconnect with one another and give you guys an interview to listen to that's worth your while. And I really think that that's what we got the chance to achieve. Now, just to wrap things up for this episode, as well as Women's History Month, I mean, as we know, Women's History Month is ending on March 31st, though I will say, just like with any other History Month we have in this country, just because it's ending doesn't mean we can't still be celebrating it at any point during the year. So I'm going to challenge all of you to continue this mentality and continue the momentum of celebrating Women's History Month um, well after the month of March and really at any point during the year. Other than that, though, there aren't too many things I'm going to add to wrap things up. I will say, give you all a heads up, I truly have not decided what I'm going to be doing next week um, with Easter. Um, I haven't decided if I'm going to release only one episode so that I can enjoy um, Easter Sunday with my family or, you know, find a way to still do two or not do any at all. So that is an update that will be coming this week um, after I've kind of decided what I think the best game plan is for myself. 
Um, I've also, in case I don't do anything, I do have backups in April to make up for it. <laughs> and I'll just leave it at that with like some of the things I have planned. So if something doesn't work out where I will not be releasing any episodes, just know I can will be making up for it in April. And if I do happen to release episodes for um, Easter weekend, then you get extra, you get an extra bit of fun in April um, to look forward to because I'm still going to do what I have planned no matter what. But just again, wanted to give you all that heads up. As always, I've been your host, Christina. It's been an absolute pleasure making this podcast for you all. And I can't wait for you to join me next time in the aisle. Take care, everybody. Have a great week.